Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, August the 7th, 2012. This is episode 954 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today I have a really cool guy named, named uh, Caleb Runnels coming on in just a little bit. And we're going to talk about archery and how archery fits in as a prepper activity. Before we do that, though, uh, we're going to take care of our sponsors, do an introduction segment. And then I have a story to cover with you today that I was going to put in the listener feedback show yesterday. And uh, with having the generator run at home and all, while I was doing the show yesterday, you'll notice most Monday shows run like an hour and a half. And yesterday's show only ran like an hour. So some stuff got cut out. This one in particular got cut out. Uh, and I didn't want to make the show any later than it already went out yesterday. So I'm going to cover it today, and I think it's important. We'll do that in just a second. First, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is MERS Radio, and that's M-U-R-S, then a dash, the word radio.com. MERS Radio is great because it gives you a secondary means of communication to allow you to have communication around your neighborhood or around your property. You can also put uh, motion detectors out that will send a signal to your handheld radio or your base station that says something like this. Alert Sector 1. Alert Sector 1. And then you know someone or something is kind of around there in Sector 1. And you think about it this way. If you pair that up with some video cameras and you have one person in the house and one person go out with a handheld radio with a Vox earpiece in and they can hear both the person monitoring the cameras and they can hear the alerts going off, it's a force multiplier. If it's just to make sure there's nobody on your porch or the dog ain't getting out of the back gate, that ain't a bad thing either. And I'll tell you what, the dog not getting away is something that uh, paid off a lot for us in Arlington, even on a small property. So check them out today. You get secondary communications. You get a very versatile security system. And uh, just to be clear, because I get sometimes people like, I want to run this at my, from my bug out location to my house. Not going to happen. MERS is a short-range communication medium, one to two miles, uh, that type of thing. About the same range as typical handheld CB radio. Uh, five frequencies, five sub-frequencies. Not a lot of people use it, though. So that limited range does give you a little bit more of an expectation of privacy, even though it is a public air uh, airway frequency. Next up today, Save Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. The first people that ever stood up and said, hey, Jack, we want to sponsor the show formally. How do we do that? They've been doing that now for over three and a half years. Uh, they also support the show by giving away their discount, vent, uh, discount, uh, lifetime discount membership program that normally sells for $49 to every single member of the member support brigade that simply says, hey, Jack, send it to me. If you log in to the MSB, you'll see how you do that. And that's a $50, well, $49 value. That makes your first year of member support brigade a buck. And then what does Safe Castle have? You name it, they got it. Everything for your long-term prepping needs. Really great prices on the long-term storables by, you know, things like Mountain House and things like that. Also some cool tactical stuff. And if you're in need of a hardened shelter, I know not everybody is, but down here in Tornado Alley, it really is not going over the extreme edge at all. Uh, their sister uh, site uh, has uh, hardened shelter, some of the best stuff I've ever seen. Check them out today. They're at prepared.pro. Prepared.pro is the website. And uh, best way to get to Save Castle, Merge Radio, and all of our sponsors would be to go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on the banner in the right-hand margin. By the way, Merge Radio, Rob Belville there, he also gives you a discount if you're an MSB vendor. I should say that as well. Uh, next up, remember, check out tspcopper.com. TSP Copper is an awesome website. Uh, I own it, but it's administered by American Open Currency Exchange, uh, American Open Currency Standard, uh, Rob Gray and uh, David Gray. They fulfill all the orders for me, and uh, there's some really cool copper coins there, TSP uh, MSB members. You guys also get 10% off all your copper orders at tspcopper.com, really cool coins. Check it out today, tspcopper.com. If you want to get there from the website, there's a beautiful copper medallion right under the survival forum uh, with the uh, Val head and the compass, uh, moral compass on it. Click on that, and you'll, you'll head right on over there. Uh, next up, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, uh, also first responders like paramedics, and you want to join the member support brigade, remember to email me prior to joining. I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. Just put service discount in the subject line and give me a sentence or two on who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if your prior service. Everybody else, 
If you think you get 20 cents of value out of the Survival Podcast every day and you are not yet a member of the Support Brigade, consider joining. It's a great deal. You get discounts to over 30 vendors. I got some really badass ones coming up this week that I'll be announcing uh, very, very soon. Uh, going congruent with uh, one of our guests later this week. Uh, some you're going to, I mean, big discounts on some really cool stuff you can't find anywhere else. So uh, keep your ear to the grindstone for that. Okay. That has the housekeeping wrapped up. Here's the story I want to start out with today. And I think if you're not familiar with the story and you haven't done your own research, you're going to be surprised at the way that I'm going to cover this because I'm not going to come down on the state of Oregon. I'm going to come down on a guy that really pisses me off sometimes. And a lot of you guys seem to like this guy, and I think he's a freaking clown. His name is Mike Adams, and he runs a website called Natural News. And I'll tell you why I don't like Mike Adams. And I'm actually, at this point... Praying for the day that I get to meet this man face to face and tell him how harmful I think he's being when we share mostly the same agenda. Mike Adams is against things like the state encroaching on your rights. Mike Adams did a pretty good job breaking the story and getting a lot of details in the story about Michigan and, and the, 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 uh, the atrocities being committed on farmers of pigs up there. Mike Adams has done some good work. Mike Adams has also done some shitty hack journalism work, and this is an example of it. I'm going to give you some of this article, and then I'm going to tell you the rest of the story, and you judge for yourself, but I'm going to tell you this, people. I got this article from so many people, so many people, and I got people sending me reprints or where other bloggers covered it that probably didn't even know about it that were using the same terminology here. And we have got to start researching stuff. If we want to oppose... Actions by the state or the state, capital or lowercase s, your choice. Then we need to be accurate in our rebuttal of the information. Just like, and it, Mike, you know, Mike, I just, God, what's wrong with this guy? Remember when they were doing the Food Safety and Modernization Act? They're going to outlaw your backyard garden. And Alex Jones and him are in league with this stuff. And he's just like, God, stop saying it. It's a terrible bill. It's a terrible bill. It's onerous on small farmers. And you idiots are out there saying that it bans you from having a backyard garden, which it did. Has anybody taken your tomatoes yet? No. Okay? So trust me when I tell you this story is equally bullshit. All right. Let me read you the headline. Oregon criminalizes permaculture, claims state ownership over all rainwater, ponds, and swales, restricted jail time for violators. Natural news, there's nothing more refreshing than standing in a cool summertime rain shower or bathing in the warm sunlight on a crisp spring day or inhaling cool autumn air fresh with the scent of turning leaves and pine needles. These things, rainwater, sun, light, and air, have long assumed to not only be free, but unclaimable. You can't claim to own sunlight that falls on my front yard, for example. A corporation can't claim intellectual property ownership over the air that you breathe and demand that you pay a royalty for inhaling. But these days, Jackson County, Oregon, says it owns your rainwater, and the county has sentenced a man to 30 days in jail and fined him over $1,500 for a supposed crime of collecting rainwater on his own property. The man's name is Gary Harrington, and he owns over 170 acres of land in Jackson County. On that land, he has three ponds, and those ponds collect rainwater that falls on his land. Common sense would say Gary has every right to have ponds on the water on his 170 acres of land, but common sense has all been abandoned in the state of Oregon. Much like California, Oregon is increasingly becoming a collectivist state. You didn't build that. The government built that. You don't own that. The government owns that. That rainwater just fell on your land. That's the government's rainwater, and you're going to jail if you try to steal from the government. That's the explanation from Jackson County officials who initially granted Harrington permits to build the ponds back in 2003. Yes, in 2000 in Oregon, you actually need to beg for permission from the government just to have a pond on your own land. But the state of Oregon revoked his permits a few years later after he had created the ponds, thus putting Harrington in a position of being a water criminal who was stealing rainwater from the state. Tom Paul, administrator of the Oregon Water Resource Department, obedient water Nazi. He insists Oregon law says that all water in the state of Oregon is public water, and if you, you want to use that water, either divert it or store it, you have to acquire water rights from the state of Oregon before doing that activity. What he means, of course, is it's not, is not that the water is public water, but that it's government's water. The government owns it, and if you steal from the government, by example, for example, damming up rainwater runoff on your land, you will go to jail. Thus, even when rainwater falls on your own property, you don't own it. The government owns it. You didn't build that. The government built that. That's not your land. You only lease it from the king. And by the way, the property tax is due again. 
Paul continues, if you build a dam, an earthen dam, and interrupt the flow of water off your own property and store the water, that's an activity that would require a water right permit from us. And then there's a link to where you get one. You don't own that rain that fell on your own yard, Oregon insists. The state of Oregon openly admits on its website, you don't own the rainwater that falls on your land. It's stated on Oregon.gov. Under Oregon law, all water is publicly owned, with some exceptions. City farmers, factory owners, and other water users must obtain a permit on water right from the Water Resources Department to use water from any source, and there's a link. I'm going to use that link to show you what a pile of tripe this article is in just a moment. That page describes an exception to allow rainwater collection from rooftops, but not from a yard or natural landscape. Exempt uses of surface include collection or use of rainwater from an artificial impervious surface like Uh, parking lots or building roofs. So in other words, if Harrington has paved his, paved his fields with asphalt, then collecting the rainwater would have been legal in Oregon, but because his fields were natural grasses, shrubs, and trees, the rainwater collection was de deemed illegal. Okay, if I keep going, I'm going to blow a gasket. Because he's going to start saying stuff, you know, let me just go ahead and read it, and then I'm going to, I'm going to respond to this. If the state claims the rain, they must soon claim to own sunlight too. Rainwater, it turns out, isn't the only thing that falls on your land. Sunlight also falls on your land. Air resides above it and minerals below it. If the state of Oregon already claims to own all the water that falls on your land, what's to stop them from claiming ownership over all sunlight too? Imagine a day when the state erects solar panels to your land, but the electricity isn't yours to keep. You still have to pay for it because the sunlight belongs to the state. Get it. If you erect your own solar panels on your own land, the state could then arrest you and charge you with stealing state property. All those uh, photons you see being, belong to the state once the state declares sunlight to be community property. And this is where all of the Alex Jones shit just goes into insanity. Let me start out with the truth. I'm going to read from an actual news source here, Southern Oregon's Mail Tribune. This is actual news where they actually vet information. So let's think of one thing that Mr. Adams told us in this article. I'll get to the headline in a second because that's where, honestly, the guy should be smacked. I mean, the headline alone is just, just atrocious. But, okay, here we go. Um, what, what Mike Adams told you is that in 2003, this man, and I, I read it to you verbatim, received a permit and then built ponds. Okay? He did not. Let me read you what actually happened. Um, let me get right where I need to be reading this so that I, I uh, don't screw this up. And uh, I just want to, you know, again, this is not new. So this is a quote right out of the, uh, the the Mail Tribune. The charges are all misdemeanors. Harrington pleaded guilty to a similar charge or similar charges in 2002 and applied for permits for his reservoirs, but they were denied. So he built the reservoirs without a permit. He then was cited for it, pleaded guilty to the charges, and then, and don't think I'm defending the state here. I'm going to get to that in a second. I'm, I'm talking about yellow journalism at its worst here. And then applied for permits. The state said, no, you don't get permits for this. And he said, well, the hell with you. I'm not removing it anyway. So from 2003 to 2012, this was fought out in court. This article reads, except when you read deeper into it, almost as though Oregon just passed this law. This law goes back to 1925. At the, here, I'm back in the same article again. I'll give you links to both of these today. At the center of the case was a 1925 state law giving the Water Commission exclusive rights to all water in Big Butte Creek, its tributaries, and Big Butte Springs, the core of the city's municipal water supply. So this is a 1925 law. This is not new. This is nothing new at all. Now, is it ridiculous that a person would be told you can't build a pond on your property? And the answer is no. The, the reality, though, is you do have the ability to, 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 get water, to hold water on your property. And this was the core of the case. Harrington has maintained that this runoff called diffused water does not fall under the state's water resources jurisdiction and does not violate the 1925 Act. In the past, water managers have concluded that runoff that the runoff is a tributary of the nearby Crowsfoot Creek and thus subject to the law. So, if this was so, there was a, there was a technicality here, and this man was convicted by a jury of six of his peers of violating a law that's existed in the state of Oregon since 1925. And the problem is that most of the people reading Mr. Adams' piece of crap that he calls journalism are not familiar with this whole other part of the country where water rights have been an issue going back to the very founding of the nation. Now, do I think that the state of Oregon is being onerous with this? Yes. 
Do I think that it's the citizens of the state of Oregon should fix these laws so that people that are putting in small reservoirs such as this gentleman could be able to do that? Yes. Whose business is that, though? It's the business of the citizens of the state of Oregon. Now, if the, the citizens of the state of Oregon pull their head out of their collective asses and go and try to do this, and some type of federal mandate gets in the way, or the will of the people is usurped, that's one thing. But this, that's not the case here. It's not the case at all. This is a state issue, and this is an issue where this guy was given over 10 years to do this. I'm not saying he shouldn't have kept fighting. I'm proud of the fact that he kept fighting. If this had come to my attention before his conviction, I would have been happy to help contribute to a legal defense fund to help this man make his case if I thought he had any case to make. If somebody would get their shit together in Oregon and try to change this law, I would be happy to contribute to the effort to try to get the law changed. But this is absolute crap, Mr. Adams. I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out because, Michael Adams, you are a coward. And I'll tell you why Michael Adams is a coward. There's a little bit of an axe grinding going on here. About a year and a half ago, I approached Mr. Adams, and I, I actually approached his company, and I said, I'd like to advertise my website on naturalnews.com because I get all this great content from you guys. I hadn't found all of this yellow journalism crap yet, and uh, I thought it would be a good place to advertise the site. I got an email back saying you don't qualify under ad policy. So I start reading the ad policy, and I'm like, it says things like the food has to be natural. I'm thinking, okay, some of my long-term storage food for my advertisers might have nitrates or whatever. That's fine. Well, it comes out that the fact that there's any content on my website whatsoever about firearms, Mr. Adams will not allow that on his website because the topic is too controversial for his readers. But all this general journalism crap, not so much, right? So then Mike sent me an email personally. He said, I own a gun. I own a shotgun and a pistol, and I'm very, very much a friend of the Second Amendment, but I just can't have it on my site. It's too controversial for my readers. So I told him he was a coward, and I'm telling him again. And this type of journalism shows that you're a coward, because let me read you the freaking subject again. Oregon criminalizes permaculture. Really? Really? Oregon? Does that not also read as though this is something new? That Oregon just passed an anti-permaculture law? Do you know how many people are going to see this, skim the article, and go, it's illegal to do permaculture in Oregon now. And I'm going to come down on some other people now. All of you guys that read this crap and didn't really read it and didn't do your research and started forwarding it everywhere and saying, Oregon, stop doing this, guys. Stop. Please. This took me, this took me a whopping five minutes. Five minutes of research to get the true core here. Again, I'm not sticking up for the state of Oregon. And this is the bigger issue. The reason people like Mike Adams make me sick when they do things like this is because we actually have the same goals. Both of us would like to see this man not go to jail and not be fined. Both of us would like to see a recognize uh, the right of an individual to hold rainwater on their own property. Both of us would like to see that. Both of us would agree that the water rights issues in western states in many cases are outdated and they're based on old knowledge and that when it comes to certain sizes of reservoirs, we actually can create more, not less water when we start holding water in the reservoirs of, let's say, four acres and down. Especially if we start holding water in reservoirs that are a half acre, quarter acre, things like that. Little reservoirs like that dotted all over the landscape actually help recharge the aquifer. See, this is a cogent, logical argument for why this needs to change. It's based on science, fact, and reality. It's not based on the fact that the state of Oregon is going to tell you you don't have the right to breathe air, that you have to pay for the air. Now, trust me, if anybody ever does something like that, I'll be the first leading the charge to, to say you can't do that. But water rights are not new. States go to battle over this. I've covered this. I've covered arguments between the state of Kansas and the state of Colorado. The state of Colorado had to drain a reservoir because the water rights were seen as being held by Kansas because of first rights, first right to the water, first claim on the water. This is done all over the western United States. But there's a whole bunch of people in the eastern United States that aren't familiar with any of this. And this guy, this Michael Adams character, knows exactly, exactly, precisely what he's doing, what buttons he's pushing, and what he's playing on. And when somebody that's open to, you know, this, somebody that's in the middle right now, that's just starting to wake up, reads an article like this, and then goes to their friends and says, look what the state's doing, and they go, that's not the case. Here's the truth. Then anytime one of us brings up these legitimate issues... 
We're lumped in with this stupidity and ignorance. So I'm going to make a formal request of you, my audience. From now on, please, for the love of God, however you define God for yourself, when you receive an email that just seems a little bit extreme, please use Google or Bing or Yahoo and do just five minutes of research. And when you find most of the stuff is reprints and other bloggers going back to the same source, try to find an original source outside of that loop and get both sides of the story and then discern the truth for yourself. But just because some guy gets on the radio and goes, I'm telling you, they're going to do it. They're going to do it all to you. Uh. And those of you who listen, you know who I'm talking about there. Right? Just because a guy is on the radio doesn't make what he says factual. Just because a guy has a pretty website and endorses nutrition and stuff that you think is a good thing and is on the same side of many issues with you doesn't make everything he says true. It's not true of me either. Many times I get it wrong. I got it wrong a week ago. I came on the air yesterday and said to you, I got it wrong. This is different. Because Michael Adams knows he has it wrong from the beginning. He's pushing an agenda, and he's so blinded apparently by his agenda that he's comfortable twisting the truth to the extreme. Let me give you a little lesson, Mr. Adams, and anybody out there like you and our favorite shock jock. There's enough tyranny. There's enough liberty-taking. There's enough offense of the public. There's enough offense, period, by government and government agency, and by corporatocracy. There's enough that you can tell everybody all they need to hear without embellishing anything, without going to extreme, without stressing, stretching the truth, and without creating a headline of your article that is absolutely, positively false. If I were the state of Oregon, I would sue Michael Adams for the headline, Oregon criminalizes permaculture. little wake-up call for you, Mr. Adams. In spite of the fact that I'm not moving to Oregon anytime soon, and I really have no desire to live there, and they are the same place with the city of Salem that came down on Jan Klein, and there's plenty of things that I can say about Oregon uh, that are negative. Oregon is actually, on the ground, one of the pioneers in the permaculture movement, both at the public and the private le uh, level. There's probably more permaculture going on in Oregon than I would say 90% of the rest of the United States. So why don't you get it right? Why don't you report the facts? And those of you out there that, that take these stories and these you know, stories about Obama, let me throw one more in there just to drive it home before I bring our guest on today. I got this email a billion times, it seemed like, in the past. It was this email about Barack Obama refusing to salute the American flag while the Star Spangled Banner was playing at a Veterans Day ceremony. And there was this picture of everybody saluting, and Mr. Obama had his hands behind his back. And you see the flag in the distance, you can tell something important is going on. And it looks like, it looks like Barack Obama is refusing to salute the American flag. Do I believe that Barack Obama wells up with pride when he salutes the American flag during the, uh, the national anthem? No, I don't. Uh, do I think that he's a smart enough politician that he would never do something that stupid? Yes, I do. So when I got that email from the billions of people that sent it to me, I did some research on it, and it turned out the reason that Barack Obama wasn't saluting the flag is because they weren't playing the Star Spangled Banner when the picture was taking. They were playing Hail to the Chief, which meant that if Barack Obama had been saluting during that photograph, he would have been arrogant enough to be saluting himself. And these are just two examples of countless things that go on over and over and over again with misinformation. And all that I'm asking, ladies and gentlemen, all that I'm asking isn't that you believe what I tell you. It's simply do your own research and know why you believe what you believe. And now that my blood pressure's up, let's take it down a notch by having a conversation about something much more pleasing today. That is bow hunting. I'd like to introduce my uh, guest now. His name is Caleb Reynolds. Uh, he's a 22-year-old uh, Iraqi freedom vet, joined the Army at 17. Uh, he served four years of active duty. Now he's uh, finishing up four years in the Army Reserve. Uh, he works currently for the Department of Defense. He has his uh, own home in uh, so Southern California, and he's now paid off all of his debt except for his house, and he's working toward paying that off as quickly as possible. He's here today to talk to us, in spite of all that, actually about uh, the importance of archery as a prep. He's kind of a new bow shooter, and I think he's going to have a perspective that will help a lot of many of you guys out there that are just getting started or want to get started in archery, uh, because instead of talking with a lot of technical terms, he talks like, 
you know, a guy that knows what he's doing has become a, a, a competent archer, but he's still new to the sport. And I think sometimes that's very, very helpful. So I'm happy to have him on the show today. And with that, hey, Caleb, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thank you. Great to be here. So, hey, um, we're here to talk about archery and specifically archery is a prep and archery is a big wide world you know there's all these different types of bows and and stuff like that so can you start out with like what's available to a person getting into archery and and what you particularly use yourself and why uh, the three types of bows that are going to be out there are going to be compound bows crossbows and the recurve bows now the recurve bows are the oldest and Probably most out of date in my opinion. I personally have a compound bow, and the bow that I shoot is a—it's actually a Bass Pro Shop brand. It's called a Redhead, and but it's made by Diamond Bowtech, and it's a 60, 70 pound pool. Okay. And I I personally like the compound the best because it's set to each individual person. The draw weight is measured to you. The draw length is measured to you. And in my opinion, for me. At least it was the best suitable for myself. I'm like you. I'm a big believer in the compound bow, but just so we don't get too many of the traditional ar uh, archers ticked off out there, I'm gonna cover you and say when you said recurve, you're 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 lumping longbow, shortbow, all that traditional archery gear into that class, right? Yes, yes, I am. Okay. What are your thoughts on crossbows? You know, I like crossbows. If you're going to do it as a general prep for everybody in a, either a family or a group and you just want to buy one bow, I would definitely say crossbow. And the reason, I, the reason I feel that way is the crossbow, it doesn't get measured to an individual person, so more than one person can shoot it. Uh, if my brother were to try to pick up my bow, the draw length, the draw weight would be way too way either way too long or way too short for him and it would just it wouldn't be accurate with the crossbow it's more like shooting a rifle or a handgun you have the pistol grip on it you have a more conventional style trigger on it and you can also mount a scope to it yeah i agree with that because i mean just thinking about it myself i have a compound bow that has a 70 pound draw weight and i'm five foot 11 inches tall I don't think my wife could draw it, and even if she could, she couldn't draw it to the length of draw because she's about five foot six. Absolutely. So, from a prepping standpoint, then you you like the, the the compound bows, but what what do you think makes archery really a great prepper skill? You make it a great prepper skill is it's very versatile. You can use it for hunting. You can use it for it wouldn't be optimal, but if you had to, I guess you could use it for personal defense. And what a lot of people don't know is uh, they actually make bow fishing kits to where you can hook up a, a reel and an arrow to your bow and fish with it. Yeah, I think archery, everybody always thinks of deer hunters. And, I mean, there's a reason. I love to bow hunt for deer. Um, but, I mean, there's a whole plethora of things that can be done with the bow, small game, hunting, etc., Oh, yeah, they even make certain arrows for uh, small game hunting. They have uh, more fletching on them or feathers on them, and they're normally more of a, a feather type and not a uh, typical fletching, and there's more of them. They're usually thicker, so the arrow will slow down faster and not travel as far so you don't lose as many arrows. You know, that's a good topic on the different arrows and, and stuff like that, and, I mean, we need to... Uh, put those to the right, you know, kind of, kind of to to, to 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 meet what we're doing. So one of the the you know I guess where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is is our our tips. So could you talk maybe a little bit about the different options that we have when we're shooting with uh, with you know the, the end of the arrow that actually does the business? Yeah, there's uh, two main different types of tip you're going to use. One for target practice, which is your regular practice tips. They're just uh, usually a small pointed tip, kind of like a bullet tip. And they range from, uh, they got different grains even from just like bullets. I prefer the 100 grain tip. And just personally for me and my bow, that just seems to be what suits the best. And when it comes to the different tips, if you switch to a different grain of the tip, you're going to have to recite your whole bow. And, uh, the other one are broadheads. Broadheads are more for hunting. And broadheads tend to be usually like a razor blade on the sides of the 
on the sides of the tip. Usually have about three or four. And depending on where you're hunting, there's different laws on the broadheads for hunting. I know most of them have to be at least an inch in diameter, so you're going to kill the animal and not just wound it and have it run off and bleed out. And, uh, they also make expandable broadheads where they collapse into themselves more like a conventional arrow tip, but when they impact on your deer or target, whatever you're shooting at, they're going to expand. A lot of people like these. Some people don't. It really depends on per- personal preference. I use the fixed blade. Uh, to me, it's just less that can go wrong. With the spring-loaded broadheads, they'll hit the target expand. Well, if the spring's broken or it doesn't expand for whatever reason, you're going to just wound the animal, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Yeah, I have kind of a different opinion on them myself. Um, I mean, let's... The main reason people would want to use them versus a fixed blade is because that fixed blade broadhead traveling through the air has some aerodynamic differences from a field point, and you can have your accuracy affected, or at least if I'm practicing with field tips, now i got to make sure I zero my bow with, with broadheads. It's probably a good idea anyway. But when they first came out, and this is years ago when I was you know, a young kid, they had this spring-loaded thing like you're talking about, and we got some of them to try them out. I remember I was probably about 13 years old, and we shot them at a hay bale, and they bounced off. I said, well, well that can't be good. <laughs> but the, a lot of the ones they have now, the blades basically fold forward, and the very act of penetrating shoves them backward. And I've used those, and I've had really, really good results with them. Yeah, yeah, I have seen those. Uh, they do work really good. They just tend to be a lot more expensive than the regular fixed blade, fixed blade broadhead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, way back in the day when, like, our fathers were the ones that were out there and our grandfathers were hunting, uh, most people used the old two-blade Fred Bear, you know, this big old, they were like 145 grains, and they did a good job of killing. Yeah, absolutely, just because, uh, yeah, they're uh, the old conventional style, they look more like a, an arrowhead. Yeah, like an Indian head, and they had one little cross blade, but it was itty-bitty, but they were a big... Um, Big wide cutting surface on the bottom. They cut about an inch and three quarter hole when they went through. Oh yeah, I mean they're so sharp. I've actually accidentally cut myself a couple of times just trying to grab them out of the box. You know what? You bring something really important up there. This is something I always talk about when we do an archery uh, show. I shot a deer when I was about, I think it was about seventeen, a little seven point buck, and the arrow went in, and we ended up finding the arrow broken, just the back end of the arrow. And we found a deer about 70 yards away, and I went to gut the deer, and I put my arms up in the chest cavity, and I felt something scrape my forearm. And at that point, I knew exactly what it was, and I hadn't even ever thought about it. And I stuck my other arm in there, and it turned out it was the 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 uh, the shaft of the arrow, not the broadhead. And I realized that's something we really have to look out for, unless we've recovered the broadhead whenever we shoot, especially big game animals, that that broadhead could be in there because the... Uh, that it'll if, it, if it's gonna kill a deer, it can kill a person, and you can really open yourself up. And uh, fortunately, I learned that lesson without actually harming myself. Oh yeah, and in a survival situation, taking that that razor blade up the forearm could be uh, detrimental to you. Not to mention, we can create a survival situation. We can go from a good day of hunting to a really bad day in the woods. And of course, if I pull my arm out, you got blood all over yourself, and I'm going. I just hope I didn't. And then you're like, okay, good, I didn't, and yeah, I never did that again without really thinking about it. Oh yeah, you got to be really careful, especially a lot of those conventional fixed blade broadheads. They, uh, they, you could take them apart so you can sharpen the blades. And if you don't have them all the way tightened on the front of your arrow, one of those, you might be able to pull the rest of the arrow out, but the one blade might be stuck in the animal. Yeah, that's a that's another good tip. Um, because they make those little wrenches for tightening them up. Those wrenches mm-hmm. are a couple dollars. You guys, you you want to buy one of those because I've seen people tighten them up with their fingers, and that's just asking for it. Oh yeah, I, when I first started out, I was tightening them up with my fingers, and I bought one of those wrenches because I cut my hands a couple of good times on uh <laughs> on the brand new blades. So there's a lot of things like that for a new person. So what is a person that's like, I want to get into archery, but I just really don't know. Anything about it? What was like? Like, how did you get started with archery hunting? 
I got, I actually haven't been archery hunting on anything. I've gone out for a couple of times for rabbits and squirrels and stuff just around where I live. I got started into archery. Uh, my brother and my dad were the first ones to get bows. And when I got out of the army, I worked at, I started working at Bass Pro Shops. And I had a lot of my, I was working up in the hunting department selling firearms. And a lot of my buddies were into archery. So I went over to archery and, uh, one day after work, just had them set me up a bow and started shooting it. And I really enjoyed it and wanted to get into it. So I, I bought my bow from there. And it's really, it's really important that you go to somebody that actually knows what they're doing with setting up a bow. Because the slightest difference, and like, especially with the compound bows, the, when you're measuring your draw length, and they set up the draw length, if they're even one notch off of the, where they measure it to set your draw length, if they're one screw hole notch off of it, it's gonna completely mess up the whole bow. And, and I mean, even, there's a lot to that, because it's not just setting the bow up for you, it's okay, now you need arrows, and it's the, the shaft diameter and the draw length of the arrow and everything as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. The arrow's gotta get cut to fit the bow. They gotta get the right, they make different arrows for different draw weights of the bow. So my dad, he's got a bow that's set up for a 50, 60 pound and mine's set up for a 60, 70. So me and him, we can't even share arrows because the different draw, uh, weights, we have to have different arrows. And that's because of the stress on the arrow. If I, I think one of the coolest things people can do to really understand what's going on with a bow and arrow is go to YouTube and find some slow motion photography of a bow being released, and you realize it is as straight as that arrow seems to go. The way it bends and contorts, especially when it's first released, is just amazing. Oh yeah, yeah, it really is, and that's a uh, one of the common mistakes a lot of new shooters do is with the torque and everything of the bow is when they try to grip it. When you try to grip a rifle or a handgun, you want to grip it and hold real tight. But when you go to shoot a bow, you're actually supposed to have a, a looser grip on the staff of the bow because the, the tighter you grip it, the more you're going to shake and the more off target you're going to be. What are your thoughts on mechanical releases? I personally use one. It is, there's so many different types out there that you almost have to just go try them. And because there's some that are thumb release, some that are trigger finger release, it really depends on each individual shooter. Because the one yeah. I have, it's, it straps to my wrist. And when I draw it back, since it straps to my wrist, it actually lengthens my draw length about an inch, maybe an inch and a half. Versus the one that my dad has is a thumb release where he just holds it in his hand, and it, when he draws back, it adds absolutely nothing to his draw length. Yeah, I'd agree with it, you know, kind of feeling it out and seeing what works best for you. I know when I first learned to shoot, um, we were like one-off from being traditional archers. Instead of using like a recurve or whatever, we did have compounds. We used basic pin sights. No kisser buttons, no peep sights, no releases, no nothing. And in fact, at the time, it was illegal to even use a mechanical release in Pennsylvania where I was with deer hunting. And so I had a very negative opinion of them. When I got back out of the Army, we moved back to Pennsylvania. Uh, that had changed, and I went and got a new bow, and I got a release. And I was like, right away, I'm like, yeah, I can definitely shoot more accurately. But there was still whole, this whole, you know, like if I wanted it to be easy, I'd just use a gun, right? But then I, some other things started to become evident to me that, that weren't about the real advantages. And one was how daggone cold it gets in the winter sometimes when you're out there hunting. And if you're shooting, you know, they call it Apache style, three-finger style, and your fingers are, you know, cold to the bone, it, it's hard to shoot. And bulkier gloves, it's hard to shoot. Where with a release, you can be wearing good, warm, insulated gloves, and you can actually, you know, still shoot accurately. And in the end, the goal is to make the shot and to have enough respect for the animal to make the shot properly. Yeah, absolutely. And the the main reason a lot of like the compound bow shooters use a trigger is because you're going to get that same consistent let off every time. Wherever you're using the old uh, three finger way, your your fingers are never going to roll off the string the same way twice. 
And yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I'm not saying you can't be accurate with the three finger way. You're just going to tend to be more more consistent, more accurate with the trigger release. Yeah, I would agree with that too. Because you can definitely can be accurate. I shot for years that way. The other side though is when it comes to getting an arrow knocked and back in a hunting situation. There's more moving parts, so it is a little bit more complex. And to me, there's some things we can do with that. Like, uh, I don't know what kind of a rest you use, but I'm real fond of the whisker biscuit because that arrow sits in there. And if I'm if I have that bow turned sideways or something, I don't have to worry about using a finger to keep the arrow on the rest, especially when using a mechanical release. Oh yeah, I love the whisker biscuit. The only problem I see with the the that I've had with the whisker biscuit is I blow through them real quick. <laughs> the the uh, the bristles on them shoot so much that it just tears them apart. At least they let you buy just the biscuit piece, though, and you don't have to replace the entire rest over and over again. Yeah, and that that is very helpful because you know, if you start getting into some of the fall away rests or the other style of rests, you can be talking a hundred hundred plus dollars per rest. And if you're yeah. having to replace that every time you blew through the uh, through the bristles on it, it'd get kind of expensive. What are your thoughts on sights? Another thing I was never big on was the peep sights. And when I bought you know, the, the bow that I have now, which I bought probably 10 years ago, it had a peep sight on it. And, man, it was like I feel like I was shooting with a scope. I mean, I, I really didn't realize how big a difference it could make. And it's because of the consistency. You're, you're always lining that, you know, your, your yardage pin up with your eye the same way over and over again. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's very similar to a, uh, a peep sight on a rifle almost. They, uh, you got, you can set them up for different yardages. Like my bow, I have, uh, right now I have three pins on it. I haven't put my, put my other pins on it yet. I have a 20 yard, 30 yard, and 40 yard pin. And with that peep sight, it just makes it so much easier to be able to look through the peep sight, line up that 20, 30, or 40 yard pin, hit my release, and off the arrow goes very, very accurately. What is your thoughts on range? I mean, you know, you've been doing this for a while now. How far can you accurately shoot consistently? Me, personally, I could shoot consistently 40 to 50 yards and have a very tight grouping knowing where I'm going to, every time where I'm going to hit. I do know people that, just for target shooting, not for hunting, that have shot a bow 100-plus yards. Yeah, I've seen that too, and I've seen people take antelope 70, 80 yards. It's uh, it's pretty impressive. I personally won't shoot that far because I'm not consistent at that range. When I was growing up, I would consistently practice at 40 yards, but hunting in the eastern woods, you know, you're limiting shots in most instances to about 20 to 30 yards anyway just because of the cover. Yeah, absolutely, and your arrow speed slows down so much at that range that I'd be more worried about wounding the animal than actually killing it though these modern bows are way different i mean when i remember my first bow i think it was a uh, a jennings lightning and this would have been about 1985 something like that and you know when you'd watch that arrow go past 30 yards and you're shooting 40 yards the drop was huge um and the arrow had this this lighter i mean you could tell just the sound of it impacting like a hay bale and today, like the bow that I have now, at 40 yards, that arrow is like a missile. I mean, I, I'm using one pin out to about 30 yards with it, and it, it's amazing the advances that have been made with the, some of the cams on them. And I imagine since my bow's 10 years old that uh, some of the newer bows have even and gone further than that. Oh, yeah, the technology has really come a long way with the, the cams and the wheels and the the different setups you can get on them. I shot my dad's uh, – my dad – had an older bow. It was a probably about a twenty-year-old bear, and we were out shooting one day. And I drew my bow, shot it, grabbed his old bear, drew it, and shot it. And the arrow didn't. I the arrows were probably too heavy, and it wasn't sighted in for uh, the grain, the hundred grain tip, or anything like that. But it didn't even make it to the target. Yeah, the arrow technology is pretty impressive too. When I was a kid, there was wood shaft arrows. And there was aluminum shaft. And aluminum was high high speed, man. That was, you know, if you're shooting a compound bow, that's what you were using. And, you know, you had to, just like you do now, you have to set the, the arrow to the draw weight and the length of the bow. But 
it was you know they were thick and it was things were just different. These carbons they have now, I think that's a big part of the capability of these modern bows. Oh yeah, the carbon the carbon fiber arrows they're so light and they're actually pretty tough. You can beat them up pretty good unless you Robin Hood one of them, then that pretty much splits the shaft all the way down and it's done after that. And my experience with hunting with them has been that many times you can, you know, take a, even a, a large game animal with one, and you, a lot of times you get a lot of pass-through shots, and that broadhead might be dinged up pretty good, but the arrow is still good. You can use it over and over again. My experience with aluminum arrows, unless you really got a sweet spot, didn't hit any bones, slid between the ribs, once you shot something like a deer uh, or, or an elk with an aluminum arrow, it was done. It was, it was a one-shot deal. Um, so it seems to me that there's a lot for prepping. That's you know a really big thing too is making what you have last longer. Oh yeah, absolutely. I have I believe two dozen arrows uh, set up. I keep a dozen set up with broadheads and a dozen set up with target tips, uh, field points, and I keep replacement uh, bristles for the Whistler biscuit, and I also keep a whole other peep sight set up uh, because if Whatever reason, I mean, accidents do happen. If you let go, try to draw it back, hit, accidentally hit the trigger, bow flies out of your hand, you break your peep sight, or not your peep sight, your uh, your actual sights with your pins and everything on it. That'd be a real bummer if that's all you had. Now you're sitting on a worthless bow. I learned something the hard way with the peep sights because you got that rubber tube, almost like a slingshot and all. And what I learned with it is that tube, if you don't keep some type of preservative on it once in a while, eventually it'll dr basically just dry rot. And then yeah. when you go to pull the bow back, that tube is what straightens that side out so you see through it versus, you know, along the side of it. And uh, so keeping an extra one of those is probably a good idea. And I started putting uh, uh, basically like armor all. Uh, on mine, not very often, maybe once a year, but just to keep it conditioned because I went through two of them before I figured maybe it was a good idea to do something about it. Yeah, actually, my dad, he was, we were out target shooting before they, they moved, and he drew back, and that piece snapped and came back and actually hit his forearm, actually mm. put a nice little cut in his forearm. But uh, the maintenance on a bow is actually very important, too, because your drawstrings, if you let them sit without putting wax on them, they'll get uh, harder and they'll get, they'll get brittle. And the last thing you want is to go pull that 70-pound draw weight back and have that line snap and come back and you break your jaw because your hand comes flying back in your face and hits you in the face. Yeah, I mean, are there some other things we can do uh, to properly maintain our equipment? With my compound bow, I go through every time before I shoot it, just take a couple of Allen wrenches, and I go through and make sure all my screws are tightened up, and I make sure I got a good coating of wax on my string. And really, the maintenance is pretty simple. If all your, if all your screws in the bow are tightened up, and you have wax on your string, there's really not a whole lot that can go too terribly wrong. I mean, bows are like anything else. They do have a fail point eventually. Sure, and you talk a lot about target shooting. What type of shooting are you doing? Are you going to a club, or are you just shooting in the backyard? I mean, what are you doing there? Uh, fortunately for me, I have uh, two and a half acres of property, so I have hay bales set up in my backyard, and I can target shoot. In my yard, I also go down to the Bass Pro Shop range. They have a free indoor range, and I will go down there and shoot too. Because especially when I'm sighting in either uh, new arrows or peep sight, whatever I have to, whatever I have to do, I want to make sure that I'm completely out of the element so I can get the most accurate sight in on my on my bow. But it's also good to shoot out in the elements too when it's a little bit windy or cold or really hot because if you don't do that when you when you're out deer hunting or hunting in general you're going to be out in the elements you're not always going to have that picture perfect no wind shot on the animal yeah i think and i've heard people say you know well why is it so important to to, to side in then out of the elements and that's because you want your baseline to be a known quantity so if you're dropping arrows, you know, an inch to the right over and over again, is it because you're looking there and subconsciously shooting there? Or is it because you have a 15-mile or 20-mile-an-hour crossbreeze and you're shooting at 40 yards? Uh, it could be one or the other. So we eliminate that variable so that we know with no weather conditions, this bow is shooting exactly the way I expect it to. 
and then I'm adjusting to the atmosphere conditions versus trying to determine what 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 impact they're actually having. Oh yeah, and uh, I mean shooting outdoors in a 10, 15 mile an hour crosswind with that arrow, especially if you're shooting broadheads, you have a lot more resistance on it, and it's going to affect your shot a lot more, especially if you're trying to fight in a new string or new peach light. Uh, it could completely throw off your grouping, and then when you go to a calm shot, you're going to get upset. I see I got upset when I first started shooting because <laughs> I... Uh, trying to sight in outdoors, and then I went to the indoor range, and I was all over the place again. Sure. That makes sense. And sighting in a bow is not like a not like a rifle. On a rifle, if you're shooting uh, high and right, you're going to move your, move your sight left and down. Well, with an arrow, when you're sighting your, your bow, you follow the arrow. If you're shooting high and right, you're going to move your sight up and right. Yeah. Because of the way that the, you're only looking at one point back to your eye. So by moving it to the right, it forces you. If you move your sight pin to the right, that makes you draw your bow further to the left when you line the target up. So it is, it's is—it's kind of backwards for people in some ways. And I think I've seen guys uh, at archery ranges that didn't get that. They were getting angrier and angrier because they keep moving the pin the direction they think it needs to go. And the arrow kept going further and further to the opposite of what they wanted. Uh, and they're convinced something's wrong with the bow. Oh, yeah, I did it, too. I When I first started sight, sighting in my bow, I had to have one of my friends at Bass Pro help me out because I was, I was, I was getting furious. I had just started and uh, shot about 100 arrows and would keep trying to sight my sight in. It kept moving the other way. And he had to come explain to me that you got to follow your arrow. And once you did that, got it sighted in, but... Another thing with a brand new bow and a brand new string, really, I won't even sight in till I get at least a, uh, well, really sight in till I get at least a hundred arrows into it, because you have to stretch out the string, and the string every time you pull it back is going to stretch and compress and stretch and compress, and you have to break in the string first before you can actually get a real sight in. Yeah, it's kind of like a break-in procedure on a rifle barrel, but it's actually more critical because the rifle's not going to change that much after a break-in period. In fact, I think that gets overstressed in the rifle world. But in a bow, with a bow, it's absolutely uh, the case because you're you're dealing with things that such a moderate change creates a magnified effect on impact. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, the smallest movements on that on that string. Uh, or if you keep trying to fight in while you're trying to stretch out that string or you're, uh, you're just going to be keep moving back and forth and back and forth and get nowhere until that string is truly broken in. What are your thoughts on like the three dimensional targets? You know, the ones that look like a deer or they look like a bear or what have you. I personally don't have one just because I can't bring myself to spend the, 100, 150 bucks on a target when the target I spent 30 bucks on works just fine. Uh, I do like them. My brother has one. Uh, they usually show the kill zone, like the, where the vitals for the deer, the animal that you're going to be hunting are. And for some people, it is easier to focus on, uh, a certain area of an animal than a big old broad target. So it really just depends on the shooter. They are nice to have and they do make it more practical if you're going to be hunting deer and you're shooting at a deer target when it comes time to shoot at an actual deer, you're going to know where to aim. Yeah, I think that's a big thing, and I think that's a – like you can look at a target and see an orange dot, and you can shoot at that orange dot over and over again. But picking a point of impact on a deer, I think for a lot of people, especially new hunters, uh, they get a, a skewed idea of exactly where vitals are. I've seen people take shots that were just well too far forward – uh, that you're going to get very, very little lung impact, or they're going to hit, you know, a shoulder blade. And a shoulder blade shot with a rifle is fine because you're shattering it. You're probably going through the other side. It would set an angle. You're taking out vitals. But a shoulder blade shot with a, with a broadhead is not ideal at all. No, it's not like we were talking about earlier with the arrows. If that if that broadhead goes in, and the arrow has a weak point at all. It's going to snap, and well, you're going to have a broadhead sticking in the shoulder of the of the deer, and he's just going to take off and run forever. You'll never catch up to him. I, I think that's a lot, a lot of the main reason with the military. They always had to have a shoot at 
silhouette-style targets. Same thing with while you're hunting with a, uh, or shooting a target that looks like a deer. So when and if you have that, have to be in that situation, you know exactly where you're, you're going to have to aim. So have you been able to find, like, other, I guess you work at a store, so it's probably pretty easy, but find other people to shoot with and kind of build community that way as well? Oh, yeah. I was actually surprised at uh, how many people shoot archery just based on the fact that it, in the long run it tends to be a lot cheaper because unless you're breaking arrows all the time, you don't have to keep replacing arrows. You don't have to keep replacing or buying all the reloading equipment or anything like that like you would have to with a with a rifle or any other weapon. With the bow, you reuse everything over and over and over again. The main thing I burn through is knots. I'll uh, go out target practicing and I'll gently hit the tip of the, the arrow that's already in the target and I'll blow off a knot. But, uh, yeah, I was real bad about it. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I would say the groups in the com- communities are out there. They're actually uh, a group right up in the high desert where, where I live called High Desert Archery, and every Friday night they just have a group of people go down there and uh, pay 20 bucks to get in a little friendly competition, and you guys shoot in teams. And at the end of uh, at the end of the night, whoever shot the tightest groups consistently takes the pot home with them. Yeah, I was going to say on the knocks, I was bad with the knocks and then ribbing fletching off. So, you know, the one arrow is coming in behind the other, and... Robin Hoods are talked about a lot, but nowhere near as common as people think. But hitting the knock or hitting the fletching when you start to group well is very common, and it gets to be a pain in the butt. Um, so what I started doing is, like, I'd have either two or three targets, uh, or I'd have, like, a target that has, like, you know, four bullseyes instead of one. And you shoot maybe one or two arrows at each bullseye, and that way you're not throwing those groups. And I guess if you're shooting, like, a competition, a lot of times there's a group thing. But when you're just practicing – because uh, it gets expensive, and uh, I don't have the stuff to do the fletching. I probably should invest in that, but you know, it's, you know, so you're taking your shafts and you get them refletched or whatever. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the stuff to do it either. The uh, a problem, like you said, blowing off a lot of the knots and the the fletching. When I first started shooting, I had a group that I was uh, shooting where I actually shot through the fletching of the arrow. I didn't take the like the the arrow didn't go down the side of the other arrow and rip it off. I just shot through the side of the fletching. I think I torched the bow a little bit and put a spin on the arrow. I don't know, really not sure what I did and shot right through the side of the fletching. Hmm. So, I mean, from a prepper standpoint, some of the advantages we could talk about it as well would be, first of all, it's quiet. Yeah, it is. And you can actually get, uh, they call them cat whiskers or silencers tied to the string of the bow that actually quiets it down even more than it already is. Yeah, and the other cool thing with those for your hunting is they're like those rubber things you're talking about. You tie on there, and some of them are made out of more like a fluffy material. But either way, the cat whiskers are the old ones I remember, and they were like this rubber thing, and you tie them on there and shred them up. When you're sitting in a tree and there's a breeze, they can you can look at them and you can tell which way the wind's blowing, so you know where your downwind side of things are as well. So they're kind of multi-purpose. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The biggest problem I ran into with the cat whiskers was... Uh, my bow was snapping them. They were literally coming off in pieces. I don't know if they were tying the serving on them wrong or what was going on, but I burned through, I think, uh, two sets of them in less than a month. Well, that's a lot. I did shoot them off in the past, but I've never had them. You know, it takes a while, and they're not expensive. So did you go to something else then, or did you just not use them now? Right now I'm not using them at all. Uh, I don't know how to tie them on there, and hmm. it's, I don't like going in twice a month to have cow whiskers tied onto my bow. So for right now, I'm not using them. But around hunting season, uh, I'll probably have them tied back on. So you're going to start going after big game now? or? Yeah, I am. See, out in California, it's hard to get you know, a shot that you would be close enough to on a deer to take with a, with a bow. So we've always done rifle hunting. But this sure. year, I'm going, up to, uh, I'm going up to Idaho to go. Deer, deer and duck hunting in October, so I'm taking my bow up there and I'm, I'm going with the bow this year. Yeah, I think we get spoiled in the eastern woods because, I mean, even with rifles, people will say, you know, well, I got a 7mm Weatherby or whatever, and I'm like, how far do you think you're going to shoot? I mean, even, even after a leaf drop, the initial leaf drop, 
you get in the eastern woods, you just don't see that far. You might get a field shot or what have you, but you're out kind of in, you know, the bigger country is way, way, way open. Oh, yeah, a couple of years ago, my brother had a shot on a deer up near uh, up near Mammoth, and it was a, I believe we took the rangefinder up there and measured it out. I think it was 350 yards straight up the hill, and I don't care how good of a shot you are with a bow, it's not going to make it that far. No, I, it wouldn't matter if you could pull it off, if you could drop, I mean, the, the odds that you're actually going to have a fatal hit at that distance are ridiculous. This isn't the uh, the old days of kings and knaves and stuff where you're, you know, dropping a couple thousand arrows on a, a military force, that kind of range works, but not on animals. <laughs> oh, yeah, there would be absolutely no way. And, I mean, even with that shooting uphill, he was shooting a 7-millimeter mag and shooting uphill. I mean, he had a pretty nice bullet drop at that distance with a 7-millimeter mag, so with the arrow, there's just no way. Yeah, no doubt. I mean... We, people make a big deal out of the fact, like in the military, you know, the Army, you shoot 300 meters with iron sights. I think Marine Corps shoot out to like 500 meters. But there's a difference from sitting on a firing range at a known range and shooting a level shot across an open field and being able to see your impacts and adjust fire and getting one shot uh, on unlevel terrain uh, with not really being sure. Now, you mentioned rangefinders, so that, that's helped a lot lately. What are your thoughts on those for uh, archery? You know, they really work great because with the, I mean, if you have a rifle with a scope on it, you kind of just, you know where you're sighted in at, so you can adjust a little up or a little down. But with the, with the arch, with the bow, I mean, five, if you're setting up every uh, yardage pin at 20, 30, or 40 yards, a difference of five, six yards could be the difference of hitting your shot and missing your shot. So it is helpful to take the rangefinder out there so you know exactly how far you're you're shooting so you know what pin on your on your sight to use. Yeah, something I came around to later in life as well because, again, it was pretty low-tech. First of all, we were broke, so you're going to be low-tech when you're broke, right? So, And then there were a lot of restrictions on things as well as to what was actually legal in archery season. And uh, I wasn't too big on the on the rangefinders and all that when that stuff came out. Now, I have a good friend of mine, the guy that made my name, Mike Patrick. He was up at my place, and uh, I mean, I was really impressed with what he could do a, with a bow out to about sixty, seventy yards. And you know, he was able to stand at any point in between and know the exact yardage. So it's not just which pin, but do I hold that pin a little higher, a little low? Because as we go further and further out. The uh, the trajectory of the arrow becomes magnified and it drops even further. Like you're saying, if you're at 20 yards versus 22 yards, eh, it's it's not that big a deal. But 30 yards versus 37 yards, that's that's a big deal. Oh yeah, absolutely. It changes the changes everything in your shot. There's a uh, at 30, 37 yards, you're going to be at a completely different pin, and you aim too high or too low with that wrong pin, and you're going to completely lose out on your shot. Another thing that like we used to do when I was a kid, though, and this was a really great activity. It's great to do with your kids, too. I don't think you have any kids yet, but when you do, uh, but when you're just walking with kids in the woods or whatever, is we used to play games like we just stop and pick something and say, how far is that, and then pace it off. And then do it again, and then do it again. Sometimes you're doing stuff that was, you know, 20, 25 yards away. And then sometimes you're doing stuff that's, you know, way the hell out a couple hundred yards out. And what I found amazing is the more you do it, the, the more accurate you get. You get to where you, I don't think it's a replacement for a rangefinder, but, um, you know, we might not always have this equipment available to us. It's a good skill to develop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Being able to judge distance with whether you're using a rifle or a bow or anything is, Absolutely a great skill set to have. Now, you mentioned a little bit briefly in the beginning about bow fishing. Have you messed with that at all yet? I went with my buddy on one occasion, and it is completely a different experience. <laughs> I didn't hit a single thing the whole time. <laughs> that is definitely something I'm going to have to practice on. Because the water changes. You, you, you don't aim at the fish, you know. Um, the first time I ever practiced with it, we, we put a, uh, a soda can in the water and, uh, you, you realize that 
you know, if the, if you're in six inches of water, it's one thing, and if you're in a foot of water, it's a completely different thing about the refraction. I think it's uh, I'm not good at it. I've only done it a few times myself, uh, but there are guys that are really amazing at it, and it's really like you're saying, like it's its own, it's just complete own discipline. It's its complete own skill set. I wanted to cut you off one second and leave a pause in there. Uh, I am getting to a spot on my drive. So this has all been really, really cool stuff, Caleb. Man, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been a great different. It's been a great experience to be here. I've been listening to the show every day for about the past year, and to be on it and be a be a part of it's a great experience. Well, I also like to thank you uh, for your service to our country. I know you spent four years in the army. You're doing four in the reserves now, so I appreciate that as well. But you got any final thoughts uh, for people just on getting started? Yeah, if you want to get started, go down to a local archery shop, look at the different bows. They're going to range from anywhere from a couple hundred bucks up to about a thousand dollars, and it really all depends on your price range. But for a couple hundred bucks, you can get set up and make sure you spend the time in the shop with the uh, the salesperson that's going to set you up and let them show you how to do all the maintenance and everything on your bow, so you don't keep going in every month to have uh, service under your bow. Awesome, awesome stuff, man. Thanks for joining us today again. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with uh, Caleb Runnels, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Yeah.